The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, July 19th, the Live from D.C. edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate, and I was so happy to welcome June Thomas, senior managing producer for Slate Podcasts, and Verilyn Williams, a Slate podcast producer, to record this episode live at the Hamilton in my hometown. We had so much fun meeting all the listeners who came out to the show. Thank you all for being there. And thank you for your excellent Is It Sexist questions. In our Slate Plus segment today, you'll get to hear our live show Q&A, where audience members asked us to weigh in on the sexist or not sexist moments from their own lives. You're not going to want to miss that. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet, you can sign up for your free two-week trial at slate.com slash thewavesplus. And if you weren't at Tuesday night's show, here's what you missed, including a live performance from DC post-punk band Bacchae. You'll hear a snippet of their set at the very end of this episode. Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming. It's so great to see a pretty big audience. This is a really big venue. I was not sure we would fill it in, and we filled it in. Uh, so welcome to The Waves. This is a very special recording of the podcast. We're recording as we speak, so you'll be able to relive the show all over again on Thursday, as usual. Um, so I'm Christina Cotarucci. I'm a staff writer at Slate. I am honored to host this show at the Hamilton in D.C., which is my home city. These two came all the way down from New York, and uh, June, actually, uh, June and I have a bit of beef because she's constantly trash-talking D.C., where she lived rivalry, around the rivalry. time I was born in the <laughs> 80s. Um, so, June, uh, what do you have planned for this trip? Hopefully it's something fun. Well, after the taping tonight, I'm going to be staying in D.C. for a few days on vacation because... Woo-hoo! You deserve it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I'm determined for us to show June a good time in D.C. so she can finally admit that... I'm not going to say it lives up to New York because they're two very different siblings. Different. But that your trash talk is unwarranted. <laughs> so today's episode, we're going to start off talking about men's rights activists, Mm. a hot topic now as ever. Currently, they're suing girls' empowerment camps and ladies' nights at bars for the rights to attend those things. Um, Then we are really excited to have a special guest, Ellen Stofan, from the National Air and Space Museum, the Smithsonian. We're really stoked that she was able to be here tonight. And then our third segment, we're going to have kind of a lightning round of is it sexist questions. Usually that's just for Slate Plus members, but tonight everyone will get to hear them. We picked three listener questions. We're going to answer them all. And then for our Slate Plus segment, y'all will provide the questions. So start thinking of them now, things that you're not sure are sexist or not. We're going to have a mic, I think, over there that everyone can line up. So if anything sexist happens to you over the course of this show, (laughs) be ready to air it out. So men's rights activists. Mm. Well, you forgot one thing that's going to be on the show tonight. Oh, my God, I did. <laughs> my most favorite part of the show. Um, Bacchae, a really fantabulous DC band, is here. I have a real soft spot in my heart for Bacchae. They're so good. Um, I actually recommended them on the podcast a few weeks back. Um, so perhaps some of you have already heard them. And if you're in DC, maybe you've seen them. Um, they're going to play two songs for us. And that'll happen sometime in the middle of the show. All right, so... There have been, there's been an upsurge in uh, lawsuits brought by men's rights activists in the past couple of years. 
the New York Times last week ran a really good piece. It kind of centered on this guy named Rich Allison, who is affiliated with the National Coalition for Men. He's been a plaintiff in about a dozen lawsuits. Almost all of their suits happen in California because California has a law called the UNRWA Civil Rights Act. And this law makes it very easy for men to sue for sex discrimination because it basically just prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex and many other characteristics. Um, But it is sort of known among the men's rights activists set as being particularly favorably read toward men who want to sue, let's say, a bar for giving a discount on drinks to women. Or um, as as one person did, uh, suing... uh, a ballpark for giving out free hats to mothers on Mother's Day. Um, I wrote about this a couple years ago. They've been at it for a really long time. The cases I wrote about um, had to do with a women's networking event run by a group called Chic CEO <laughs> and a women's golf network or a golf event. Um, men say they applied. These men were aff- affiliated with the National Coalition for Men. They applied or tried to get in, were turned away, and said that they were discriminated against on the basis of their sex which they were. And they were, uh, they're kind of like ambulance chasers, right? They're literally yeah. only applying exactly. so they could get rejected and then sue. Exactly. It's not like they have a deep desire for no. like Mother's Day gifts. This is where I, defend, <laughs> where I defend the men's rights activists because we have to point out that even though these men and their cause are despicable, everybody, every, even the people that we agree with, chase clients. They don't necessarily chase them. These guys are all about getting their money. And that's clearly what they're about. But every cause shops for the right case case and the right, right plaintiffs. I mean, Edie Windsor wasn't the only person who could have been put on a case to test the same-sex marriage right, but she was very sympathetic. Everybody's looking for sympathetic uh, plaintiffs. These men are not in any way, shape, or form <laughs> sympathetic. No. But everybody does that. But I think there's a difference between shopping for clients or, or shopping for plaintiffs. These are people who have actually been discriminated against and going out and trying to get discriminated against. Yeah. So it's not like Edie Windsor went and, and tried to get married for the sole purpose of mm-hmm. uh, being a plaintiff in this suit. And the, the thing that really bugs me is, well, first of all, there's this one lawyer that's sort of made this his living and has Literally. gotten rich off of shutting down girls' empowerment camps and women's networking sessions. Um, and it's not like men actually are suffering for not being allowed into those circles. The way when women sue for sex discrimination, it's because they've been passed over for mo- promotion when they're pregnant or they've been sexually harassed or any number of actual grievances. You know, when men are discriminated against, it's not necessarily because they're men. They're not suffering any actual harm from not getting a free hat at the baseball game. Am I wrong? I think the thing that they talk about is like, oh, well, let's lock up people that accuse someone of maybe sexual harassment or sexual violence, like that lies about that, or the paternity folks that are like, oh, I pay child support all this time and it's not my baby. Paternity fraud is one of their (laughs) other big causes where they believe that there's an epidemic of women who falsely claim men are the fathers of their children in order to extract child support payments from them. But women's ladies' nights are wrong. We shouldn't have (laughs) ladies' nights. Well, we shouldn't have ladies' nights because it's about baiting men. So it's like, but women are still the... I mean, the yeah. victim in that situation. Well, it's very interesting to note that many of the lawsuits about ladies' nights that this group 
and the people affiliated with this group make, because the group itself does not make these uh, cases, are they kind of get tattled on by other businesses, by other bars that don't want to spend the money on a ladies' night, and they say, hey, you know, that bar over there is doing a ladies' night. You need to <laughs> sue them. And it's to get their own, you know, to, to preserve their own advantage without actually having to give a discount. But ladies' nights and uh, things like that, they really are not... You, it's not right to discriminate on the basis of sex. Um, I think if you want... I understand why bars do it, because they want to have... They want to have peop- a mix of people there. They want. Well, they're kind trying of- to bring in women for men to yeah. look at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there, you need to do that in other ways. You need to make your bar a place that people want to go to. <laughs> <laughs> um, this actually reminded me of a, a bit of lore in my group of friends where I have one friend who's a trans man but keeps the F on his driver's license for reasons I won't go into. But he always tells the story when he used to go out and party more, he would go to a ladies' night <laughs> and try to get in for free or whatever, and they'd be like, well, you're not a lady. And he'd be like, check my ID, bitches, <laughs> and get in free or get a, a discount. And that also made me think, like, there's actually, whether we want to admit it or not, a little bit of a connection between this kind of lawsuit and saying don't discriminate based on gender, even if you're discriminating against men, who is, like, arguably the more privileged class when it comes to sex and gender, and uh, institutions, what's that? You said arguably. Arguably, well, <laughs> mixed opinions in this crowd probably <laughs> on whether or not that's true. Um, but then you also have institutions like the Michigan Women's Music Festival, mm-hmm. which has discriminated against trans women, saying that you know they're not women-born women, they're not women, and they don't belong here. And so whenever you try to say that someone can't come in because of their sex or gender and try to define that really narrowly, it gets sticky. And I mean, I hate to sympathize with these absolutely despicable people, but I actually think it might be good for some of these institutions to have to say, like, well, this is why we think it's valuable. And maybe what you need to do is just not ban men, but just make them really uncomfortable if they join. Right. Exactly. Like, say on your website, like, this is a feminist exactly. organization or networking session where we'll talk about, like, women's this, this, and that, so that what man would want to go to it? <laughs> right. Well, in most cities that are, you know, typically in uh, in progressive cities where there are non-discrimination laws, I don't, I'm not aware of any areas where you can't, where you can discriminate based on political opinion. In D.C., for example, you can discriminate based on or you cannot discriminate based on political affiliation so you can't say no republicans but you can say no anti-feminists you can say nobody who you know no bigots because mm-hmm. those are positions and beliefs and and th- th- those aren't protected right. but you can't like you can't you shouldn't be able to discriminate on race and sex and these other things that we do well know. that you can't help like there's you you walk into a room and you know that a person is like I'm black. Like there's no way for you, there's no way for you to know whether I'm a bigot or whether I am a Republican. Or well, whatever. except that then if the people challenge those rules, you say you know you say, well you're not letting bigots in. like well, if go Stephen challenge Miller that. comes and eats at your restaurant and you know all about what he thinks. You know yeah. I feel like it's different. I guess when you're a public figure and these days it isn't always clear. Like do you meet the criteria? I mean especially around gender. You know with gender binary or you know gender non-binary or 
gender fluid people, where do they fit in with with you? Like if you, so for example, the wing, which we've spoken about mm-hmm. before, it says. Does, wait, does the, everyone know what the wing is? Yeah. Do we have any wing members in the crowd? <laughs> yeah, anyone any members? Part can get of the wing in? here that can get me a free spot. Yeah, <laughs> the wing is really interesting because they have uh, they've changed their they've changed their position a little bit where they began by saying anyone who identifies as a woman is welcome at the wing and it's a non-male space. But in the two cities where they operate, it's mm-hmm. against human rights law to discriminate on the basis of sex. And so the New York Human Rights Commission is investigating. DC, I think, is not interested in saying no to the business that the wing brings. Mm-hmm. I know Muriel Bowser, our mayor, was at the opening. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Mark Stern at Slate has made a really good case that you know one of the group's heroes, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, yes. who they went so far as to make a cocktail about, uh, has specifically said that you know when she's advocated for... Uh, gender and sex equality. She does not want there to be a world where there's space for saying, you know, men not welcome here. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of her first cases were advocating for men's rights, and that's how she got women's rights. But and read her book, RBG. That RBG. Yeah, it definitely blew my mind. I was like, oh, that's how it happened. But I think there is an argument also for say, I feel like a taboo word, but safe space, right? And so one of the words, I literally screamed out loud, one of the sentences, a marginalized group of people doesn't need to be excluded other than to create a safe space. Doing so actually does exactly the opposite. It gives power to your oppressor. Um, no. First, like safe space is exactly like there is a study that says that black women on average are happier than they used to be. And I directly equate that to all the hashtag black girl magic or like there is a power in seeing yourself and seeing yourself being celebrated by your community that I think is so insidious that they're able to just go out and do all these ambulance chases and get monetary gain against people that are actually need safe spaces that they don't understand. Yeah, I'm they sure they don't experience. care. They don't care. And also they don't get the benefits of yeah. those spaces. If right. you're a man that's entering a women's networking group, you're, you know, the problems that they're talking about and the issues that they're dealing with are not by and large going to be relevant to you and so I, I feel like the only people who would want to be part of those spaces would be people who are either trying to you know join up with the national coalition for men or you're trying to make women uncomfortable by taking over their space that said I mean it's I feel like what we're talking about is groups that like will draw a line in the sand and say, if you're a man, you can't enter here, which, as you said, June, I mean, what are you going to do? Like, try to clock someone's gender when they walk in the door? It's impossible. And even the RBG's argument, right, that we use men's, like, we give, make men the platens for these things is because people will listen about the plight of a man over a plight. You know what I mean? So even in that, there is, in, like, there's a privilege that is unspoken, but we all kind of wink to it. That to me, the fact that now men are advocating for men's rights feels, it just feels bizarre. It's like, I guess, I mean, the only, the only case that at least in the articles that we read that didn't win was the one against the Trump golf. And I was like, <laughs> that is some ironic shit. Like, <laughs> wait, oh, what was Trump, that case? It was the Trump, oh. You want me to go through these notes again? I don't think so. <laughs> but it was, it was the Trump um, the Trump golf tournament. Like, they gave a discount to women. Which, I mean, we all know what Trump was doing at those golf tournaments. And they, mm, and they so. would never back down. Because the other thing is that a lot, of the, a lot of the reasons these organizations led by women, they just plead because they can't afford to go through the litigation. So even in that, the reason why they win a lot of these cases is because they have the money to fight them. Yeah. I mean, but what do you think 
a group like the wing should do. I mean, it, it made mm-hmm. me kind of mad because I saw on their website um, back when the New York Human Rights Commission first started investigating them, they were having some kind of workshop about non-binary gender identity. And I was like, really? You're going to say that like only women can join your group and then have a workshop about a group? And I think they've since come back and said like, well, if you're non-binary, like you're still welcome. But like, then who who wants to be part of a group where like your identity has just been sort of tacked on to avoid, mm. you know, a, a lawsuit that's being possibly raised against them. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt really gross to me. I think the way to make it be okay is to have actual politics to say, you, you know, you can't say that uh, this is for women only, but you can say this is for people who believe this. You can say this is for mm. people who, you know, believe in feminist principles or who believe in x and y if you can beliefs are fine and there's going to be one men's bathroom stall or like one you know one area where men can go where like it's going to be uncomfortable for you if you come here i've got another great idea you make the place really unattractive for example i remember like going to lesbian bars where you get the last tuesday of the month you get the back room it's (laughs) like about room for about five people in this 50 people in there and that's where all the men want to be, you know? It's, it's a Wait, great, what? What do you cause, mean? Cause, because men, for some reason, like, you know that women are, you know, lesbians have, like, five square feet for one night of the month, and that's where suddenly all these people want to be. Yeah. I mean, I it's just, it's, it's a very strange desire. Why, you know, why do these men want to be there? So these particular guys who are making these lawsuits, they want to, they want to profit from it. But some people just don't like to be told that they can't be somewhere and that's the only place they want to be. Or they think it's cool to go into a space that's not made for them. Yeah. Can I tell a quick story? (laughs) So I, I'm not going to name any names, but I was in mixed race company and I was talking about this online, I mean, this um, group that I have of producers of color. It's a very, like, no structure to it. I was just kind of talking about it and a colleague of mine who is a white man, straight white man, was like, oh, can I join? And in my head, I laughed because I was like, oh, we're just... And he was dead serious. And this is someone that I love and respect. And I was like, oh, you... And I think it was because he thinks well, that he... Cool. That is cool. I want to be a part... I want to like, be a fly on the wall. I want... Ally. <laughs> <laughs> I want to, you know, I want to, like, have this, these, this perspective. I want to be a part of this. And it's like a weird, like, gazing that... This, it's like, no, no, that's like... No, thank you. Yeah, well, hopefully he doesn't find somebody willing to bring a lawsuit against that unstructured (laughs) text chain or whatever. (laughs) Um, I think that's all the time we have for men for tonight. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for clapping at that joke. I'm going to make room for the the NASA scientist. Yeah, we've got (laughs) an amazing guest. Uh, Ellen Stofan is here. Woo! Ellen kindly agreed to be here to talk about her job, among other things, in spite of the fact that she's only been in her current gig for a few months. She just joined the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum in April of this year. Um, After spending more than 25 years at space-related organizations and researching the geology of planets, including Earth. Before coming to the museum, she was the chief scientist at NASA, where she helped develop a plan to get humans to Mars. So, Ellen, our first question for you, the question that I'm sure is on everybody's mind, uh, what 
waits for us on Mars. Why should we want to go to Mars? Well, to me, the chief reason for wanting to go to Mars is that about four billion years ago, um, Mars looked like the Earth looked four billion years ago. It was mostly covered with water. And at that point on Earth, about 3.8, 3.9 billion years ago, life evolved in the oceans, and it stayed in the oceans for over a billion years. Now, we know Mars was wet for about 500 million years. Then it dried up. It got cold. It got very inhospitable for life as we know it. So based on what we know about Earth, life should have also evolved on Mars. Now, it probably never got very advanced. Sorry, no little green men, probably <laughs> just microbes. But the idea is we really need to send humans, geologists, uh, to Mars to crack open a lot of rocks, not just to find, oh, okay, we found some sort of algae-like fossil on Mars, but we need to find lots of them because we need to understand how different is life that evolved on another planet from life on this planet, and what can that help us think, start to think about what is life beyond our solar system at all these planets we're finding around other stars. I noticed you said send geologists. You're a planetary geologist. <laughs> yes, <laughs> is exactly. This just, is this just like you want to take advan full advantage of your expense account to get to go to Mars? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> People who know me let know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not much of a, you know, the idea of actually going to Mars is a little <laughs> intimidating to me. But honestly, if someone told me, like, you could go to Mars, and especially if you could, like, transport, I, I would do it in a second. <laughs> I, I was texting with my daughter one day, and I was trying, she was going to college in Scotland, and we were texting back and forth, and I, I tried to say, I'm teleworking today, but I actually, my phone, I swear to God, <laughs> autocorrected to, I'm teleporting today, and she's like, I knew it all the time, you people at NASA. <laughs> well, if anybody could, We don't talk you. about it. We don't talk about it. Yeah, I'm sure they would let the director of the Air and Space Museum go first once that technology becomes available. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't risk it. No, I, I um, I've read. I, I can't say that I quite understand, but I've read that your 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 field of ge of planetary geology. You've you've studied many planets. Do you have a favorite planet? You know, obviously, I I should say the Earth because really? there really is no place like home. There's no other place <laughs> humanity can live. There is no planet B. This is the planet that we have to take care of. Um, this is the planet that is in danger right now from climate change, um, and this is the planet that we really need to focus on. So the Earth always should come first. But Titan, Saturn's moon, is actually my favorite planet. <laughs> I've read, you know, a couple perspectives from scientists who have said, you know, let's not politicize science um, it, by politicizing it or positing science as somehow in opposition to, let's say, the Trump administration, we might make people anti-science. And then other people who say, you know, science is always political from th the way research is used or not used to apply to policy to the funding of it. Um, what's your thought on that? I think you've seen over the years just an increasing frustration um, from the science community over how science has, is being viewed by the general public. And so when you see things like people, um, you know, being suspicious of vaccines, when you see people not understanding that climate change um, is actually happening um, and it's happening at a rate that is, is really frightening to many scientists, I, I think there's this this feeling among the scientific community of, you know, we haven't done a good job of convincing the public or expressing to the public that the science is sound, that we understand what's happening, that we have strong methods that make us understand that vaccines are safe, that make us understand that climate change uh, is actually happening. It's not something to believe or not believe in. 
um, it's science. And so I, I think it is important for scientists to speak up. I think to step away and say, well, we can't get involved in a public dialogue. We're already in the public dialogue. And I think it is important for scientists to speak up. Um, and I've been really passionate, which a lot of people are in the scientific community, about the importance of scientists learning how to communicate better. Because there's, you know, for sometimes there's like, oh, you know, I'm not going to dumb my science down. It is not dumbing your science down to n use normal English words um, <laughs> and, and to speak in a way that the public can understand. And the best example, one of the scientific um, science communications training classes I was, I was in, um, they had somebody read a paragraph about cricket. And I lived in the UK for a while. And, you know, after years there, I still don't understand cricket. But you realize it's its own language. And science has its own language. So let's make sure that as scientists, we translate our language into the language that everyone speaks. And let's get our points across. Have you, I'm, you know, we hear that, uh, there, you know, that it's hard to get women involved in science and technology. Uh, were you typically the only woman in classes? To what extent were you the only woman in rooms during your education and during your scientific career? Most of it. <laughs> and how did that, like, how did that feel? You know, f for me, it's, um, and it's varied, I will say. Like, when I went to graduate school, um, actually, I was, I got a PhD at Brown University, and my, of the graduate students entering in my class, about half were women. Mm. Um, but by the end of the graduate school, um, over two-thirds of the women, or about ha half the women had left, oh, wow. a much higher rate. And, and then as you go more into your career, there are generally fewer and fewer women. And I worked at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I worked on all these different spacecraft missions. And in a lot of those meetings, I would be the only woman in the room. And for me, it always made me look around and think, do I belong here? Because I don't see anybody who looks like me. Um, and I think for so many women who are in fields, and obviously then if you look at the situation for women of color, it's, it's even worse, and there's lots of studies that show that, studies that show they get treated worse. I, I, think, I think it's just really hard, and that's why so many women leave, because they don't feel welcome. Mm. And then sometimes I would forget you know, that I was different because you're just talking about work. And then somebody <laughs> would remind you in, in a subtle way or a not subtle way. You know, it's this whole issue of microaggressions where all of a sudden you're reminded, you know, oh, you're a woman. And, and it's always with some implication of, of being lesser. And so to me, it always made me feel like I had to work four times as hard to be taken half as seriously. And that's exhausting. And I think for people of color, for white women, that's just the situation and it's not acceptable and we have to change it it's changing too slowly if you look in computer science and engineering over the last several years the numbers of women have actually declined um, so we're still not doing a good job and that's why you know there's lots of research to show how we can do things better some of it is happening um, I think the importance of role models is really critical I I was extraordinarily happy when the film about Katherine Johnson um, came out from the book written by Margot Lee Shetterly because I think showing um, when you can show a girl someone who looks like you achieves these things it makes it all that much easier um, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Jordan Peterson. Uh, he's a sort of self-styled public intellectual from Toronto um, who has attracted a large audience, many of whom belong to the sorts of men rights activist groups we were just talking about, um, but is gaining steam as somebody who is uh, respected in the public sphere. Um, 
in certain corners of the public sphere. One thing that he likes to bring up, um, one of his sort of bugbears is this idea that men and women are biologically different and feminists always want to say they're not, but they are, which I'll leave it there. <laughs> but he, uh, he loves to bring up this study of um, Nordic countries, which by many indicators are far better at gender equality than we are in the States and that many other countries are. He says in these countries, and the studies have shown that in these countries, there are even fewer women in STEM careers than there are here. So he says that this is proof that women are biologically predisposed against uh, STEM jobs. And I know this is not necessarily an unpopular or fringe opinion. I mean, I remember it wasn't so long ago that the then president of Harvard said the same thing. I can't remember his name, I'm sure. Larry Summers. This is a very smart audience, everyone knows. Um, Do you pay attention to comments like that? And and as a woman who is at the top of her field, uh, how does that make you feel? Uh, Like a mutant. You know, I I mean, it's just, come on, because when when someone says you're, you know, women are genetically pre, you know, not inclined to be scientists, mathematicians, you're like, all right, so then what am I? I I mean... (laughs) You know, women do excel in science. Women do excel in math. And I can, for for the studies, and I have seen these studies that are cited, for those, I can show you a stack taller than I am of science that disproves that. Um, and it's been shown time and time again that what is affecting women from going into uh, science, technology, engineering, and math are cultural predispositions um, and cultural expectations. And that is the cause of the difference. Girls tend to actually slightly outscore um, boys at a young age on math tests. But the scores go down as the kids get older, and and it's been shown time and time again. Uh, In fact, one of my favorite studies was one where they actually looked at uh, how a teacher scored math, and all of us, including me, no partial credit. Like, wasn't it your, like, favorite thing ever, partial credit? You're like, yes, I'm going for the partial credit because I don't know the answer to this. Um, And they showed that when their names were on papers, um, the teachers would give the boys way more partial credit than they would give to the girls when they took the names off. The girls actually outscored the boys on the test. So there are so many factors that are going into why a girl goes into STEM, why she doesn't. In the Nordic countries, there could be lots of different reasons why that's going on. There is no biological basis for STEM careers uh, and gender or sex. There's just not. Uh, you're a relatively new arrival at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Um, I'm very curious about this. I'm, I'm curious, like, did you all, did you ever think you would be the direct, you know, have a position like that? And I'm also curious about, like, internal Smithsonian stuff. Like, do you have this really killer, like, softball rivalry? Do you, like, look at the <laughs> entry numbers and be like, oh, man, we are killing the Hirshhorn this Yeah, this do you month. try to sabotage the other yeah, museums? yeah. So tell me about that, too. But, but also, well, like, about this. I, I do have to point out that we are usually one of the most visited museums in the world. Yes. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that deserves a round of applause. We're usually um, tied with the Louvre. Um, oh. And Ooh-la-la. there's now, a, I think that's a museum in Shanghai that, that um, out, outdoes both the Louvre and the National Air and Space Museum. So perhaps uh, Beyonce will film her next album <laughs> at the National Air and Space Museum. You heard it here first. And, and we are, and we are um, the most. We are definitely the most visited museum um, in the U.S. Uh, not that we have a rivalry thing going on. No, um, apparently not. 
You know, I was actually an intern um, at the museum after my sophomore year at college. I went to William and Mary uh, down in Williamsburg, go tribe. Um, <laughs> and I was a summer intern and it was the thrill of my life to be walking into that museum um, in the morning before the public was allowed in and you'd look up and see the spirit of St. Louis and see all the iconic objects in there and be able to walk around without anybody else in the museum. And I, I loved it, but I honestly never thought that I would come back as director. But when I knew that the position, the previous director was retiring, um, and I think you hear a little bit about my passion for getting girls um, engaged in STEM, getting more pe uh, people of color engaged in STEM. And when you have this amazing museum and we're actually about to rebuild the, the downtown museum. We're redoing all the galleries in the museum. Um, and the opportunity to say, how do I better engage this next generation of explorers and innovators? And how can we really look at the museum content and say, how do we translate this for a new audience, for a new generation, to really make sure that every single kid that walks into that museum sees themselves as maybe the next Orville Wright, um, not just a kid that already kind of looks like Orville Wright. Thank you so much, Ellen. Yeah. This was a really great conversation. Great. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Um, so for our final segment, we have three is it sexist questions that our listeners sent in. Um, some Slate employees have read them. We did a gender-blind casting, so pay no attention to the whatever perceived gender of the voice that you're hearing. But uh, our first question comes from Stephanie. Roll tape. Dear the Waves, I've been watching old episodes of The Living Single, and it's brought up a familiar trope. Two people who hate each other eventually hooking up and maybe getting together and falling in love, like friend Max and neighbor Kyle do in season two. It's common in romantic comedies, opposites attract, but isn't it sexist and really an extension of if he pulls your hair, it's because he likes you, which romanticizes violence and stalking as devotion. Thanks. No, no, thanks. <laughs> thanks to you. And so is it sexist is the implied question um, at the end of that. What do you guys think? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I, I think it's like the yes means no. That I think it's like something that's been built. I also watch Living Single quite a bit. I know the Max and In a 90s and kind of world, I gotta have my girl. <laughs> And yeah, it was like they hated each other in the first season and then all of a sudden they were having sex. And <laughs> I think there is like an underlying message that if no matter how horribly someone cheats you or what they call you, if you just look hard enough, there can be love behind those names calling. Keep digging, people. I mean, it's, it's hard because, yes, the, you have to have tension, right? You mm. always have to have that like, oh, he's horrible. Oh, oh. But, like, you can do it in other ways. You can have it be, oh, I just misperceived them, or I, I, I went with stereotypes, or I just didn't understand them. And that way you can kind of, the scales fall away and you realize you love them. But, that, I mean, I really, everybody's, everybody's going, oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's all. It's really hot, but it's not, is it? No. The ugly duckin duckling thing is another thing I was thinking yeah, about just now yeah. when you were saying that, yeah. like the Laura and Urkel kind of, oh, right? Like yeah. the minute he became Stefan, all of a sudden he was a different person. Or like, you know, say those Adam Sandler movies, you know, like Happy Gilmore, where basically a woman who's an adult woman civilizes like a <laughs> yeah. man child. Yeah. Mm. That's another okay, rom-com. So both of those things that you guys said... I believe are sexist. Now, I haven't seen Living Single, so perhaps what? I'm speaking out of turn. Okay, cool. You have such a treat ahead it. of you. <laughs> I just promised that I would start watching Pose backstage, so I have a lot of uh, catching up to do. Um, 
But I think this kind the, you know, two people who hate each other become lovers trope is not necessarily sexist because I don't usually see it as somebody treats somebody poorly and then the other person forgives them. I think it's usually two people have differences and they overcome them because they love each other. I'm thinking like a you got mail situation. Um, but like how like that's it's almost like there's this thing called love that's just like floating around mm. and and they, these people who don't have any anything in common suddenly wow love falls on top of them and suddenly if they're both very attractive though yeah, which yeah, a lot yeah, of times yeah, actors yeah, and yeah. actresses are and I do believe that that happens a lot in real life where two people who are hot no matter what how their personalities mesh will just <laughs> fall in bed together that does happen a lot doesn't it it does it's kind of like so the way that they treated each other on the show where you ever watch like you watch Martin. Kind of like, <laughs> no. Mar- I know, like all my, all my I'm television shows have very different TV habits. <laughs> yeah. But it's like the, it is the name calling. Is this the kind of like, you know, teasing the person to the point of like, you're being funny for the audience, but those are actually not cool things to say to someone you're saying as your friend. It's yeah. kind of just the, yeah. It's and the, that's another show where we also had like Tisha and Shaniqua, even we're also, we're both yeah. like Shanene. adult women. Shanene, excuse me. Wow, we're both, wow. I know, I just completely blew my spot there. But we're adult women yeah. of, you know, different styles. But, and, and Martin and whoever else was, you know, in the picture were kind of children in men's bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's, mm-hmm. that's that. There's so that right is it there. sexist? Yes, it is. No, so we're supposed not. to investigate it. Oh, so obviously no, you're going to bring down the score. I don't think it is. I mean, wow. I think you believe in love, don't you? I do. And <laughs> I, I also believe love. that in the same way that people, when you start to get to know somebody, physically they can become more attractive to you over time. Perhaps somebody's personality could also become more attractive. But the thing that you were, one of you just said about how people in sitcoms will always insult each other and then it'll just be fine. I think that happens with friend groups too. It's like every people are always betraying each other, even in and it's supposed to be funny, <laughs> not in real life on TV. That happens oh, a TV. lot, okay. and it's not. But I think I don't think it's question is like, when is, that happens. Is the act of that happening that being reinforced is that sexist? Not necessarily is what they're doing sexist, but like is the fact that these sitcoms are reinforcing this as normal is that sexist? I mean, so the baseline, I. I'm going to give it like a two because the example that because I'm accounting for the fact that I've never seen Living Single. That's one. And then number two is the the thing that Stephanie said. It's reinforcing about, oh, when someone pulls your hair, that means he likes you. I think that Mm. is sexist in that it ingrains these like really harmful Mm -hmm. and heterosexist relationship tropes. So I'm going to give it a two. Wow. I'm going to start calculating the average. I'm going to I'm going to like dock you three points for not having watched Living Single, so that puts you up to a five. So you're a five, okay. I'm going to give it, um, I'm going to give it a solid seven. I could oh go God. higher, but I'm going to go with seven. I could Dang. go higher. I really could. I'm going to give it an 8.5. Whoa. What? We're at yes. odds here. You know, Leave if this was a rom-com, this side of the table and that side of the table. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, why are we even friends at this point? 5.83 repetent. I really brought down the average. All right, our next question comes from Megan. Hi, I'm a lawyer in a law firm with approximately a thousand attorneys that's in the process of taking new photos of all the lawyers as part of a website overhaul. During my photo shoot, I was posed standing sideways, looking at the camera over my shoulder with my hands clasped over my crotch. I was assured that the photo would be cropped and my hands would not show. 
Afterwards, as I was flipping through the many shots of me on the photographer's iPad in an effort to choose one, it came to my attention that my male colleagues had been photographed with their hands in their pockets, at an angle to a camera that would be much more direct. I was wearing a pantsuit with pockets, and I would have been infinitely more comfortable with my hands there. The sideways pose I had been instructed to assume, meanwhile, had an obviously slimming effect. I know the power of power poses has been undermined, but I'm a litigator, and I often deal with the subconscious bias many clients have against hiring a slight diminutive female to do battle for them in a courtroom. I think I might have benefited from a more assertive pose that met the camera head-on, with hands on or near my hips. Is this sexist? Thanks, Megan. Since you were wrong on the last one, Christina, do you want to begin with this one? (laughs) Okay. First of all, I think it's hilarious that, Megan, you described your pose as having your hands clasped over your crotch. And how I wonder how that differs from just having your hands clasped in front of you. Like, were they actually making you, like, grab your crotch? Because in that case, you not only have encountered sexism, but should be suing the photographer. Um, Yes, I think this is obviously sexist. I think just the fact that they would have all of the men in the law firm have one pose and then apparently the women in another pose is That's sexist. a slimming effect. Like, and the slimming. fact that they would have her look over her shoulder, which is so coy and flirtatious. Yeah. And I know she said in her question, the, um, you know, whatever philosophy of power poses have been undermined, but the part that has been disproven is the idea that standing in a power pose, which is like superhero, um, it was posited that that created some sort of hormonal change in your body that would really pump you up to like be brave and you know go get that promotion or whatever that part has been disproven it's not been disproven that when you look at somebody in that pose you think of them as stronger and more assertive and more persistent or whatever good qualities an attorney could have I mean there's so much in this and none of it is good I mean (laughs) just the I I mean just everything that she's dealing with you know the 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 photograph I mean just I get that people, you know, firms want to make their lawyers, especially in a huge firm like that, be humans instead of just names. But like, what is it? It's almost like you're shopping from a catalog. I'll have that one. (laughs) That one looks good. Like, what? What is that about? I mean, at Slate, we did that. We did something (laughs) similar. And there were options like there was a book of pose options that Wait, I missed the book I never have my picture oh in the New York in the New York office we give her yeah we're, we're kind of special and we have a <laughs> book of poses uh, Jamel Bowie literally took my photo with his iPhone and that was what was on the slate <laughs> up until our redesign that was my author photo oh, so man, poor um, I'll, I'll be speaking to somebody after this episode <laughs> and one of our uh, co-hosts occasional co-hosts Brianna Gray who used to be an attorney also told us that when her company did something similar, they forbade the lawyers. I don't know if it was all the lawyers. I don't know. So we'll just say all the lawyers from smiling. Like What could be worse they, than a smiling lawyer? They couldn't lawyer? show their teeth. It was That's like right. if you were getting a passport photo taken right. where there were all these things like you can't show your teeth, you can't have this and that showing, your face has to be at a certain angle. You can't have a false mm-hmm. mustache pinned to your face. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, and just the idea that this woman, like, feels that she has to sort of stand in a pose to appeal to, you know, to give her clients more confidence instead of her ability as a lawyer. I mean, there's just so much that's just so depressing. But even without a picture, they would have a name. And if she's got a name like Megan, I mean, you know, there are many ways that <laughs> you know, people would know she was a woman or assume that she was she a woman. Was, yeah. And so I think there are a lot of ways that that biases can assert themselves. But certainly having a woman pose in like a coy like 
heavens to Betsy. Like I'm going to shrink into myself. (laughs) Pose is not going to do her any favors. This is sexist. Yeah, it's definitely sexist. Okay, let me get out my calculator. Oh, but now that I've given the last one 8.5, I'm like, is this more (laughs) or less? You've given yourself a baseline problem. You have to judge each one in a vacuum. Hmm. Hmm. The other thing I was thinking about as someone that, like, has taken a lot of pictures in my life, (laughs) and I am super, like, I think about, I think about those things. Like, I think about, like, where is my hands? So another thing I was thinking about, like, is she more critical of her pictures like I just think that there's there's a certain type of person that like literally looks at everything and overthinks things like me um so I guess like knowing the kind of place that I'm coming from with that I'm wondering is it sexism yes but also is it her perception of it or like internalized sexism like Mm. if only I could have had my hands in my pockets I would have been or better. Has, was she watching Living Single that told her? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like maybe there was I mean, something Max outside. Max is an attorney, of course. Max is an attorney. Right. If the photographer, if she was uncomfortable with having to clasp her hands over her, her crotch, crotch, I'm sure that her discomfort also showed on her face. Mm-hmm. But that she but was are we sure that it was going to be cropped. So maybe she, I'm sure she mentioned it. Like, because I know, like for me, like even right now, I'm like, should I be like this? Like, I don't want <laughs> it to do. Great. You know, Just I I think it. I overthink things like that because I know pictures last forever, right? And so maybe she maybe had overthinking. So that being said, I'm gonna. Verilyn, give it, is it sexist? <laughs> yes. I'm okay, gonna but give one it a seven. Oh, okay. less sexist. Wow. <laughs> the judgment. That's a really controversial <laughs> choice. I'm Jude. gonna give it a nine. Oh my god. I'm kind of torn because. It is very obviously sexist, but I'm not sure how much import to imbue it with. Yeah, that's always a tricky part mm-hmm. of the calculation. Like, does so, it? Oh, well, one thing Hannah so, always says, like, does it hurt women? Like, is it something mm, that hurts mm, women? So, yeah. yeah. So we're just remembering Hannah. I know. She's her wisdom when she's not with adheres us. to us even when she isn't here. Yeah. Does it hurt women? I would say um, that made me downgrade my score. Really? I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna but it hurts it. this woman. But yeah, but women. <laughs> Somebody out here thinks it hurts all women. Yeah, I think okay. she's right. Okay, I'll bump my score back up. 7.5 with audience participation. <laughs> 7.83 repeating. Repetend. Repetend. <laughs> I taught this group the word repetend, by the way. Ellen, our mathematician. That was actually almost our name. We, were, we could have been the way, so we could have been repetend. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we have got one more question right. before we turn it to you guys hopefully you have some good questions um let's hear from nancy hey the waves here's my is it sexist question when i was a veterinary student on rotation in clinics a number of my female classmates would flirt quite overtly with the male clinicians during clinic times the male clinicians seemed to enjoy it and frequently flirted back or at least played along mostly during those times i felt quite left out and during the times flirtation wasn't going on i felt overlooked that is, it seemed like the allure of the flirtatious girls tempered the clinicians' interactions and they seemed to favor them. Frankly, at the time, I felt like I was a victim of sex discrimination and that I did not get the attention these other girls did in ways that affected my education. I really don't feel that this is sour grapes, but after many years, I still wonder if my assessment is correct or was I being sexist in a way? Thanks for the help, Nancy. Yeah, there are a lot of potential sexist actors in this situation. And this is one where... I really wish, like, we could, like, there was this, you know, like, Facebook or Google had just been making a lot of tape, and we could just watch the tape, Mm. because so much of it is about her, like, perception and her memory, and just kind of feeling like things weren't fair, and Mm -hmm. that's one way where she's saying things weren't fair, and 
And like, it sounds like it wasn't. Certainly her perception of that she was treated poorly and she didn't get her fair shake. Mm-hmm. Or as my therapist says, feelings are not facts. Mm. Yeah, feelings so you're are saying not- that she, that her perception of being treated in a sexist fashion was maybe more of a feeling than a fact. It, but we don't know, right? We don't know. We don't know. And but, I'm also like, I want to touch your therapist because feelings can be facts, I think, sometimes. <laughs> well, like, you're, like you, can't base, you can't make decisions based on feelings. Ooh, so wow, I wow. can think I deserve a raise, but do I deserve a raise? <laughs> yes. Like, well, yes. <laughs> but, like, make sure that there are facts based on it, not just based on feelings. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I'm not coming around. I'm coming around. Session. Yeah, I, I mean, so I tried to think of everybody in this situation and decide whether or not they were being sexist. So... Were the women flirting behaving in a sexist manner by trying to get undue advantages? And I would if say they were what made them do that. Exactly. So I would say no. I mean, I don't think they were behaving in any wrong way. Well, the because, system is sexist. Right. The system is sexist. And but also I wonder if Nancy if we are uh inculcated to see the way women act around men as sexual and flirtation when maybe it's not and that we have we put this sort of like sexualized and heterosexualized uh, lens on any interaction we see between women and men especially in an academic situation where there's already this uh, sort of stereotype of like a sexy co-ed or veterinary student in this case uh, and like flirting with an older professor to get a better grade Um, not to question Nancy's interpretation of the situation and but I do feel like the facts would matter in terms of whether she's being sexist or not. And, and uh, but, I mean, but it's hard for us to deny Nancy's reality and to. <laughs> yeah. um, I think for me, I'm gonna I'm gonna come down on this in the as you said earlier, Christina. The system is sexist. That was fair. They are. Oh, excuse me. Is, the system is, is sexist. Being sexist? <laughs> <laughs> the system is sexist, and kind of where Nancy's mind is going, she's feeling it. She's seeing it. So we can't really we just can't know the specifics of this situation in any way, but it's sexist anyway. Sure, I mean I, the, the thing I was just thinking about is so when I would do man on the street interviews, which I had to do often, I knew that if I smiled at men in the street, I would automatically get them to talk to me in a way that I often didn't. I knew that I, with women, I'd have to have a different strategy. And so I think that speaks to the system is sexist, but I've definitely used the sexism to get what I needed, which was interviews for my job. So, so you're saying it's just how it is, man. You gotta work the system, especially since it's about her perception of it. She's like, I still carry it with me. Is the way that I see it sexist, and so yeah, but it's not your fault, is what we're saying, mm. right? Exactly. At least that's what I'm saying. And that's what's so like striking to me. I mean, I, I get the sense that a bunch of years has passed, and yet she's still holding, holding this. And, and I cut the question down. It. Like yeah, she talks yeah. about, like she's a teacher now, and she right. she doesn't. Her own students, yeah, she yeah. she makes sure that she doesn't. She kind of uses that memory to kind of guide her in the work that she's doing now. Nancy, uh, yeah, I hope you've got someone to process this with. However, (laughs) we are about to give you a rating on on whether or not you're being sexist, which I'm sure will be really helpful in your personal growth. Um, Mm. I think, well, someone else go first. Okay, I'm going to go, because Nancy, we love you. We love you, Nancy. Um, The system (laughs) is 10 sexist. We're swimming in sexism on a permanent basis. But Nancy, you, you're you're just dealing with it. So I'm going to give you a one. 
Oh, that's yeah. so kind of you. Verilyn? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Follow that. Uh, the system is definitely a 10. I'm going to give... Do you want to give Nancy some numbers? I'm going to give Nancy a... F- a a 5.5. There's a lot of science in this. Um, I mean, we've been talking about this a lot in terms of the Me Too movement Mm. and how, especially, you know, in these systems where everyone's sexist, the people who don't get sexually harassed in a quid pro quo way can also suffer the impact of that. So I've got to say Nancy's maybe a three. What's the number? What's our scientifically? Let's see. Oh, it's, it's low. It's a 3.16 rep attempt. Okay. So, right. okay. Nancy, I hope you're able to, you know, let go of this really traumatizing memory now that we've given you a numerical rating on how sexist you are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are we doing their questions oh, and then recommendations? What about a recommendation? Okay, recommendations. recommendations first. So um, who wants to go first? Since you're both looking at me. <laughs> uh, I'm going to recommend a documentary out right now called Whitney. Whitney that. Houston's um, Life and Legacy. Um, as someone that thinks about storytelling, I do think that it has a particular arc that I really wanted to explore the role of drugs, drug use, the way that we reacted to it. Um, the way that we treated her and thought about it. it I cried the whole time, oh so God. definitely go with your tissues. Um, but it just also made me really sad just about the way that her legacy, although someone, argue, like literally I was talking to my friend about it, I was saying like, oh, it's such a shame that, you know, she's not held up with, you know, the way that we think about other grace and like this is one of the first motion pictures on her life and I was saying all these things about just like the plight of black women and storytelling and this white man was like... I love Whitney, and so, and and I was really emotional, so I actually heard him in a way that probably if he said it to me right now, I'd be like, sir, I'm not talking to you, Um, and so maybe that's also my perceived, but anyway, go see it, it's a beautiful documentary, bring your tissues, and um, Wesley Morris wrote a really beautiful review of it in the New York Times that I also really recommend. I am doing a DC-specific recommendation in honor of us having our show here, so I have a recommendation that I think is kind of a hidden gem, but it's possible that some people here already know about it. Um, the convention center, the Walter E. Washington convention center has a really amazing (laughs) art collection. Wow. It sounds like somebody here knows about it. Um, so they have a full-time curator every few months. They do a free tour. I went on one in April. Um, it's a $4 million art collection. I looked up a bunch of stats, (laughs) $4 million art collection, the largest of any convention center period. And there's more than 130 <laughs> works of art there. June, am I impressing you yet? I'm like, oh I'm going God. there tomorrow. <laughs> it was so much fun. The tour that they give, I mean, I am a little bit of an art nerd. I, I come from arts journalism, but the tour is really meant for um, people of any level of arts appreciation. It's very interactive. There were people of, of all ages there. Um, and there's some really incredible works. There's uh, photography from Carrie Mae Weems. Yeah, I mean, there's Sam Gilliam, who's a local artist, uh, an old artist from the Washington Color School. Um, it is a little bit of a weird uh, display space, but they do a great job. I mean, there are some really tall ceilings where they have these big, large-scale installations. It'll surprise you if you've never been in there before. And if you have, perhaps it'll give you a new view on a familiar space. June, what's your recommendation? Um, So I want to recommend a piece that was in The Guardian today, which is Tuesday. We're taping on Tuesday. Um, 
It is a long read called The Ugly Scandal That Cancelled the Nobel Prize. It's by Andrew Brown. And it's about all of the shenanigans in the Nobel Literature uh, Academy. And it's, in some ways, sadly, it's a kind of familiar Me Too uh, story of just bad men um, and their enablers uh, and the people who stand up to them and what happens to them. But it's, and that's kind of familiar, although the specifics are very interesting and dishy and juicy. But it's also in some ways like a kind of a sad story about a small language and about how randomly the Nobel Prizes became so huge, run essentially out of Stockholm in a country that has, relatively speaking, a tiny um, you know, language base. Not that many people speak Swedish. And yet, you know, being a Swedish poet can earn you a place on this academy that has a worldwide significance and also can bring uh, a very nice lifestyle. And in some ways kind of reminded me of the resource curse, you know, when a, when a country has... Um, you know, what can be, you know, a country has oil, it can actually cause them more problems uh, than not having it. Exactly. And uh, that's that's the situation there. But it's a really fascinating. And as long reads go, not too long, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I would really like to thank Faith Smith and Kirsten Holtz-Naim, who put this whole event together. So grateful to them. Um, Danielle Hewitt, yes. a producer who's recording this so that you can listen to it all over again, or if you are listening, so that you can do what you're doing right now. I want to thank <laughs> Bakai for coming. Yes. They're so good. Woo-hoo. I hope you guys listen to them online. Um, and thank you so much to the Hamilton for having us. Yes. This is a fantastic Woo. venue. Thank you to Ellen Stofan for her time. Uh, to Steve Lichtai for introducing us. Steve yes. Lichtai, he's an amazing executive producer. For Verilyn Williams and June Thomas, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening. Please enjoy Bakai. I have no sympathy for shit's not to see So lover, come back to me Take all the air I breathe Grant us some ecstasy before we go drown Use me up Tell me 